So we're in 2 Thessalonians today, and we are in chapter 2. And one of the things uh, that is very apparent in our study today, as you, you've just kind of read over it, uh, you understand that um, there are a lot of voices out there. Boy, it is going to be hard to speak over that rain, isn't it? There are a lot of voices out there, and it's kind of like that, you know, it's like something competing for you to kind of think about other things. But one of the things about that is that we could hear a lot of people talking about God. And in this area specifically, I mean, you're always hearing things about God. People use that kind of lingo and they talk about those kinds of things. And really, one of the things, too, as a young person uh, in the faith, maybe one of the you might notice this sometimes is when you're really hungry and maybe even just in general in life, when you are hungry you are one of the, you're kind of wanting to uh, get anything to satisfy you, and so you'll eat whatever. And maybe as you and always mess around about, like if she meets somebody that she thinks we always eat at restaurants or whatever, and some people will just like any kinds of you know they'll eat anything, and she'll say, well, they don't have a very distinguishing palate. You know, that's a way to say that, I guess, in a nice way. I would have never said it that way, but she said, I have a distinguishing palate. She'll even say it to me sometimes, like Jared, you don't have. A distinguishing palate, you know, but it's a way of saying like, like you can't distinguish between what is maybe good and not so good. But even in our spiritually, spiritually speaking, I think when you're young in the faith, you, you are, you're doing that. You're saying it's harder for me to distinguish between what is good and what's not. It just is. And really, again, when you're real hungry and running after the things of God, there's all these voices and you think, I'll grab this one and this one and this one. And I've told you before, it took me a long time to just be able to say, okay, these are the books that I could read, that I could, and people that I would read, that I could trust that they're going to speak the things of God. They're going to be faithful to Scripture. And I mean, it's hard to sometimes understand what what the right thing is. And so we know that that's a battle and we have to test what we here. And we also know that that was a real battle in this church because they're young and there's a lot of voices out there and they're, they're trying to distinguish between what is good. And I would just say to you, I mean, if you were, um, and, and this is something I'm telling you, it is hard to find churches that, that the word of God is central. I, 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 I really, I don't think people understand that it is very Hard to find a place where you can sit down under the teaching there and you could like move through the scripture and understand, oh yeah, I see that person, what they're saying is what's in the scripture. You go to places sometimes and really they're picking so many different places from scripture, you're, you're, it's almost dizzying and you think, are they really in the Bible? Is it really there? I would just say to you, regardless of where you are, like where you live or where you're going to live 10 years from now, when you get to a church, when you go to a church, if you're sitting there and week after week after you've been there a while, you don't understand your Bible better, you need to find a new church. You should learn the Bible at the church. We should say God has revealed himself through his word. And therefore, as I gather with the people of God, they should speak. People should be speaking his word. And I should be able to understand that, see that in Holy Scripture and grasp it. That, that is the primary thing for us. 
Do they preach the Scripture? There are things that you like and I like that maybe Christ Community Church doesn't do a certain way. But at the end of the day, the issue is, are they clearly unpacking in every avenue the, the Word of God? Are they doing that with my children? Are they doing that in service? Are they doing that in the words that they read? In service, are the songs unpacking truths about God? If that is the case, that's the central issue. And don't be listening to not, and don't be playing music during the service and stuff. I'm just messing with. <laughs> I'm just playing with her. All right. So I just think it's important. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Melissa. I had to throw. <laughs> Okay, so I think it's important that as you're looking at that, we understand that, we grasp it, because the Apostle Paul, when they are dealing with issues, uh, and when we're thinking of things like in the book uh, of Thessalonica, that's the issue, is like trying to distinguish with what, what is right and what is good. Now, one of the issues that comes up in this, like if you're studying Thessalonians, that which you have been with us, is the day of the Lord. I mean, it comes over and over and over. And, and the issue of what about Christ's return? So I want you to just look at something real quick with me. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. And I just want you to scan towards the end, 4, 13 through 18. You'll see that emphasis on the day of the Lord. They had concerns about it. They wanted to know basically uh, what's going to happen to those who have, have died before Christ's return. And Paul's going to address that because it was an issue of like, almost like a missing link in their, their minds. They were going, but Paul, did you tell us about this? About what happens to somebody if they die and they never, uh, they, they don't, they're not around when Christ returns. And so he addresses that. You can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and you'll notice there. In the first letter, again, we'll see here, we see him speaking of the day of the Lord coming and people being surprised by it. And so some were asking about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, and, and, and he's saying, listen, it's going to be a surprising time. It won't be a surprise to believers, but it will be a surprise to the world. People will be caught off guard. The day of the Lord will just come. And so he emphasizes that. And, and, and he tells us that. He's saying it's going to be a glorious day for those who know the Lord. And you can move on over. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul returns to the theme of Christ's return. And when he speaks of that, he will say, uh, the qu question really is how, is, how is Jesus glorified in this time? That's kind of what's going to be answered here. And it will speak of him being glorified by executing judgment on those who persecuted God's people and, and taking those who, uh, and, and like rescuing those who have been persecuted for Christ's sake. So all of that's kind of unpacked. And we keep going back to the day of the Lord. The coming of Christ. The return of Christ. Now look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. He's addressing another issue. Because evidently some people were saying that Christ had already returned. And they were in a state of panic. And then Paul's going to say. It's impossible that for Christ to have already returned, because before he returns, there'll be this great rebellion. There will be this, this one who will lead a rebellion. The scripture in First John, in John speaks of it as the one, this antichrist that will come. This one empowered by Satan who will actively persecute and, and draw away the people of God. So, until Christ comes... Or before Christ comes, this will take place. And that's what Paul will unpack for them. He'll say, here's how you know that Christ has not returned yet. It was a big issue for them. 
So just kind of a couple of things if you want to write down what you might get from this text first. This passage reminds us that we are to listen to God's word only. When Paul spoke, he had apostolic authority. He was under the inspiration of the spirit. He would write to them. The second thing, this gives us proof that Christ has not yet come. Therefore, we have a future. I mean, that's just important. We need to know that we have a future. We're, we're, we're longing for a day to come when Christ will return. Third, we need to know that, 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 that before that, there'll be a time of great rebellion. But ultimately, we will be rescued. It's, it's very important that we understand that there's going to be a falling away from the things of God. Fourth, although the Antichrist will lead many astray, he will ultimately be defeated by a word from Jesus. That's another thing that secures that up for us. So we will experience victory. And the fifth thing I would say, it leads us, and this leads us really to next week, but he has chosen us to be saved and so we are secure even though we know it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's kind of the idea. There, there is that security. And I think that's important. We'll look at that more closely next week. So let's dive into the text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in this way. So what is the issue at hand again? The coming of the Lord. The church was in a state of alarm. They were fearful. The, the idea of being shaken in mind is kind of like a, it's something that knocks you off your conviction or composure. There's sometimes like, a, I, I, I remember sometimes like growing up, like I would come to these, uh, maybe like these thoughts about Christianity. And, uh, and, and this was a good thing for me because sometimes I would come to these thoughts and I would be really like zealous about them. And then my dad would come in and I would talk to him and he asked me one question and it would knock me off of my high horse kind of thing. Like one question, you're like, oh man, you know, it messed up all my thoughts about that. That was positive for me. This, on the other hand, they were secure in the right position and someone's coming in and questioning those things and it could knock them off of, of, of the solid things. The idea is like a, a ship when it's been anchored. And it's it set st steady in a right place and a storm comes in and breaks that away. That's kind of the idea. So they need to be secure. And, and, and he's saying you don't need to be shaken up because here's the deal. When people, and that's what Ephesians says, are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. When the winds come and, and all these false things come in, if you're shook up all the time, you can't stay focused. And I would just say, I mean, you can't stay focused. And I think some people even in their minds, their minds run like that all the time. And you have to say, listen, go back to the basics. Hold fast to this. Christ is going to return. He has not returned yet. And he's securing them up. And it keeps them in the midst of suffering. It keeps them steady. It keeps them anchored. So they're under the persecution and difficulty. And he doesn't want them to lose Hope in the face of those storms, both the false teaching that comes in and on the other side, the persecution that's coming, they have to be secure. They have to be. See, and that's another thing for you. Life, false doctrine, persecution, trials, they're going to hit you. That's why you need to gather with a people who are secure in the faith, who are securing you in the faith. Who are grounding you in the truth. 
Because it's, it's, it's coming. And it's there all of the time. We need to be grounded in the fact that Christ will return. Now, in that time period, uh, people would even write letters. And it would be like, uh, Jacob, I could write a letter and I could say all these things and be like, sign my name Jacob at the end. Jacob Duke. Send it out. And people would be like, well, if Jacob said it, it's true. Right? That's kind of what would happen. In that with the Apostle Paul, they, people would, Apostle Paul was like known around the churches. Write this thing out. Put Apostle Paul in it. Throw it out there. People go, oh, it's true. And I think that's important that we see that. So people were trying to lead people astray. And they would do that in that time period. We have some of those today. There are these things that you could go out and read even now. that From those times where people would sign the wrong name. Or they would sign somebody's name to try to make their message like be more true to people. So they would use that as a way of deception. And we, we know that deception is extremely dangerous and, and especially deception that attacks Jesus here. And that's what you see a lot of times throughout the t- centuries is that's how people would do it. They would attack the Son of God in His work. And so it, it's very important that we see that. It's a way of that they, they would turn people away. Now, what are the issues here? The issue is about Christ's return. Now, this happened in Corinth. This happened in the church in Ephesus. This has happens in Thessalonica. And we see in every one of those places, there's kind of this issue of Christ's return. Some people would say, oh, well, it's just a spiritual work. And so you're resurrected. The the coming of Christ is like when he comes into your your life, when you're transformed by the power of the spirit and you come to spiritual life and there is no physical resurrection. That's what happened in Corinth. That's what was happening in Ephesus where the resurrection, they said it had taken place. And it says that that they destroyed the faith of some. We see that in 2 Timothy. So false teaching had penetrated this church and it was this this struggle of of the Christ return and his coming. And some people, again, would just say things that would be like, well, the spirit came at Pentecost. That is it. Christ returned in the power of the spirit. There is no second uh, coming. And it, it, it would make these people struggle in great ways. But Christ is saying, no, Christ will return. I mean, Paul's saying Christ will return. The day of the Lord will come. Now, notice what's going to happen beforehand. Paul's going to say this, this rebellion is going to come. Now, look at verse 3b through 5. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul will say, there is a rebellion that will come before the return of Christ. He calls the one leading that the man of lawlessness. At the heart of this rebellion is a rejection of law. It's a rejection of standards. They broke the rules, you might say. When you see a little, like, for instance, if somebody, sometimes, you know, somebody will come to me and say, my child is in a state of rebellion or my, my little, uh, my, my, my young, you know, the, the youth in my family, someone, some, my young son or whatever, he just keeps moving away. When they're saying he's in rebellion, they're saying maybe he's rejecting the rules at home. He's rejecting the rules at school. He's rejecting the rules at the church. He's just rejecting all law. He not, wants no standards on him. 
this idea here is kind of, and some people would see this as like political and religious rebellion, a total rejection. Now, uh, the problem with that a little bit is that the Old New Testament, you, the, when this word is used, it speaks of spiritual rebellion. So the question really is, when we're looking at this text, is saying, is this one, what kind of rebellion are we talking about? Is it a worldwide rebellion? Is it a worldwide rebellion that kind of has implications for all the nations in the sense of like the governments and then just a throwing off of all law? Or is it more of a spiritual rebellion within the church? I think the emphasis in the New Testament and the Old is on spiritual rebellion. Now, some people would take this just kind of if you've grown up in a, in a, in a more like a pre-trib kind of uh, mentality or whatever, they would see this word not being rebellion, but it meant departure. And, and honestly, they would see it as like this is the this text is talking about when the church departs. But again, always in the in the context of the scripture, it's this is always this term is always used in terms of not a departure of like a resurrection of people leaving, but a t- departure from the faith. So I think it's important that we, we note that it's a departure from the faith. It's a turning away. So I believe this text is speaking of a final rebellion, a turning away from God led by the Antichrist before the coming of Christ. It's kind of the picture that we see here. Now, notice what happens about what we see about this man of lawlessness in verse four. He opposes and exalts himself above any so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, if you remember, when we studied Daniel, this kind of leads us back to Daniel chapter 11. And you could put Daniel eleven thirty-six through 45. You could go back and read that. But, but we talked about that at that time. There was this focus on uh, really on Antiochus IV who kind of exalted himself to the place of God. Many believe this is like a first fulfillment back then when Daniel was talking about that. When Antiochus came, it was a first fulfillment of a final Antichrist that would come. And so really when you see these, these verses that speak of this rebellion and leading themselves up to the place of God and the temple of God, it's this picture. You see these little pictures throughout history history ultimately leading to this final one who will rebel against God now some people would take this and say well you know what's going to happen since it's saying that he's going to sit himself up up on the uh, the temple of God and he's going to sit in himself on this place they're in their minds they think there's going to be a temple restored like in rebuilt in the final times and that this antichrist figure will 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 like desecrate that temple I, I really lean away from that and and some of the reason of course is i think in the scripture even jesus would speak of the temple as himself the temple is also spoken of as his church is the temple we see that in like ephesians two nineteen through 21 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So the church is like the the little stones. It says in whom the whole structure being joined together grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ is the cornerstone of the church and the church is built. And so I think generally speaking when I look at this text, this great rebellion, 
uh, that seems to be the emphasis seems to be on a spiritual rebellion, an apostasy, a moving away of the church, a turning away from the truth of God, a rejection of God's law, a rejection of the true worship of God, all of that taking place in the church being when you think about it, that, that what, what's going to happen here is there's going to maybe potentially the way to see it is there'll be someone who leads this great rebellion to, 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 for the church to turn away. For, 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 the, for the purity of the church to go away. And so I think that's important to see that. Now, should we try to identify the Antichrist? I, I remember one time I had this guy, um, and I, I really respect him. and I, I mean, I do. It just it kind of shocked me. I remember uh, we had this uh, guy come and speak at, at my former church where I served. And, and, um, and he spoke the first night and the second night. The third night, he said, I'm going to bring something special to y'all. And so the third night was like, kind of like how, uh, I, I think one of the British leaders was uh, probably the Antichrist, you know. And that's what he talked about. That was his sermon, you know. And uh, I can't remember which one it was, but he had kind of worked out this deal. And he was like, isn't this, you know, he was speculation, you know, and all that. And I was like, oh man, is this really what we wanted to do? You know, like, is this what we were wanting to teach on? But I think when we, when we... Uh, when we think about that and we think about the Antichrist, I think we have to be careful um, not to say, oh, I'm going to find him. So I'm going to read the newspapers and pull out this and pull out that. Man, I read everything that's going on in Israel and I read this read that, and I'm finding it. I think we have to be really careful about doing things like that because I think it, it seems to get us off focus often. It seems to get us, instead of preparing ourselves for the day of the Lord, preparing ourselves for the, this, maybe this final rebellion before the return of the Lord, however you kind of put all that together, we kind of get lost in something like that. But, but you do find that even in the early church, there were people that identified once. And honestly, sometimes I think we need to just say, like, there are people that, 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 that maybe that come in the spirit of the Antichrist and rise up in a way that you say, this looks like that. But what you see, like in the early church, some people would see, um, for instance, uh, one of the, the, the emperors, they saw him. He came to this place where he, he not only led the whole world, kind of, but he also led uh, like in a spiritual way because he said, I'm God. That was one thing. And so the early church saw maybe the emperor and, and the whole Roman order kind of is, is part of like the antichrist during the middle ages uh, some of in the church saw uh, muhammad as the antichrist and, and and while that was going on of course there's going to send people over and take back jerusalem and so muhammad was the antichrist during the late middle ages uh, corrupt popes like i think the franciscan monks said a lot of the corrupt popes they would say this is the antichrist during the reformation luther calvin zwingli knox and Cranmer saw the, the papacy in general as the Antichrist because they were politically, both politically and spiritually, kind of this whole leadership uh, uh, taking place. The Catholics returned the favor and called Luther the man of sin. It's just one of those things that happened in the early church. You know, even in the Westminster Confession, along with those questions we read, the Baptist Confession, that, that when, when, you, when you read those, they'll say, and there's a question that speaks of, of who Jesus or who is the head of the church. And they said, Jesus Christ is the head of the church and not the Pope, who is rather that man of sin, the son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is God. 
Some people, like in my time period, I always felt like people were usually talking about military leaders. Hitler's the Antichrist. Stalin's the Antichrist. You know, so it, or, or, you know, like political and, and military kind of figures. So I think it's important that we say, okay, hold on, let's just back up for a minute and say, I do believe that in throughout history, John speaks of this, that there are the spirit of the Antichrist is to reject the, the Christ. It's anyone who rejects Jesus. And you might even say anyone who's rejecting God's ways, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so there are people that are going to kind of rise up to the to, to places where you're going to say, wow, they really embody that. And they're leading people by the droves away from the Lord. So there is so maybe in a way you could say there are multiple fulfillments of this Antichrist type figure, but it's going to lead itself to this final one. So you kind of say, well, hmm. in my mind, at least I think about like when we're thinking about these things, what is the church? What would the church be looking for? Or maybe you could say, what would the world be looking for? Would he be a great military leader, spiritual leader, entertainer, social reformer that would try to dismantle the both church and state? If you take a little bit more of the emphasis that I would be on on the church falling away in a broader sense. You would just say, what would it look like for the church to embrace someone who rejects God's rule? Would they desire to? Now, here's the thing. You got to think about this. When Jesus came on the scenes. He comes to his own. You might say the, the visible representation of the church, kind of the Jewish world. He comes to them when, when he did that. What did that look like? He came to them. And some were zealots. And they were like, he's going to come and take over the government. And then he comes to, to the Pharisee, you might say, and they're saying, we just need more morals. We need them to be more religious and moral. Fix all these people. There's too many rebellious people here. He's going to straighten them out. Look at all those tax collectors and sinners that we hate. Hope he just sends them away from us. You keep going and you think some might have been looking for like the crowds who came and says, give me something to eat. Make it where everybody always has something to eat. We're hungry here. And you think, what is the church looking for even today? What kind of Christ figure would the church be longing for? And you even think about the movements within the church. And I think we have to say, what is the church longing for? Would it be someone to take over the government? Someone that would build the wealth of the church. Some that would make it more easy. Somebody that would bring tolerance. And unify the church with tolerance. Or someone who meets everyone's felt need. What is the church looking for? Could it be a self-righteous uh, system created by people that knew b better the law that or expanded on the law more than Jesus ever would in ways that destroyed it? You see, the Christ came the first time and the most religious people rejected him. This second time figure, this one that's to come, that, that's this that before the coming of the true Christ do you think he'll come in that way? What is the church's appetite? Will he be 
We'd be drawing people out because their appetite is so worldly and godless, but but it's cloaked in spirituality. We live in a dangerous day. The church is moving away. And I think just like in Jesus' day, in our day, there's only a handful that really want Him. That long for Christ alone. The Antichrist will come giving people what they want. It, it almost reminds you of the day in Saul with Saul when the people were saying, Give us a king! That's what the Messiah is. Give us a king. Give us one like the nations get. Give us that king. And God said, I'll give you a king. And he gave them Saul. And Saul would destroy them had God not rescued them. So we need to see that and say, wait, let's stop for a moment and say, Christ hasn't returned until he does come. We know that there's going to come a day of great rebellion. Let's run back to the truths of God and be serious about walking in His ways so that when the rebellion comes, we won't be following after it. The world, the idea here I think is not that the world is going to just fall away. It's that the world's going to infiltrate the church and the church is going away. And it will be like in Jesus' day where He says, are y'all going to leave too? Jesus said of that last day, he says, you know, he speaks of will there, will there be faith found in this day? Will there be people that are walking with God? Verses 6 through 8. And you know what is restraining him now so that he might uh, so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so. Until he is out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. They need to be on guard. That's why he says be put on the armor of God throughout uh, the, the New Testament. Now, the picture here is you might ask the question of who is the restrainer? Now, certain people would say that that the. That the restrainer is the Spirit of God working in the church. But if you're a pre-trib person, you say, but Jesus already like snatched the church out before this great tribulation, this great trial. And so that's how you would answer this. But I think what we see here is like, this is a difficult thing. What's happening here? Some people again would just say, hey, when the church is snatched out, the Spirit leaves. And then uh, what's left over is this time of great trial and tribulation. Some people would see this and say, and it was a widely held view throughout history that Rome and the powers of the state restrained this great rebellion. Again, that's how a lot of people would see it. It's referred to really, even though the state's often an evil entity, it has this role of being a minister of God, of upholding law in a world. Some suggest the restraint is Paul and the preaching of the gospel, which continues to today. The, the, the preaching of the gospel will continue to spread throughout the world. And, and Calvin even said that, that the, the light of the gospel must first spread throughout the whole world. Augustine, early church father, said, I don't know what restrains or who the restrainer is. 
But I think it's important that during this time we understand there is this, uh, this period of restraint before the spirit of lawlessness and godlessness takes over. But even now that spirit is there. As, as the time comes and it becomes greater and greater, Jesus says if this time had not been cut short, there's no telling what could have happened. Yet at the perfect time, Jesus will come and destroy the one who tries to destroy his people. Let's go to verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders and with all wickedness and deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Jesus here, uh, we see him not only like taking out. This one, but in the midst of this, Paul's going to say, hey, what what are the, what is this rebellion like? Let's understand that just for a moment. He says Satan is behind it. That there will be powers and false signs and wonders accompanied by the Antichrist, just like when Jesus came on the scenes and we were saying the kingdom of God has come. Why? Because people are being rescued from from uh, disease and disorder and all kinds of things. And this, there's going to be this day where this great rebellion will come and these signs will be done. And I believe that very likely they're real signs. They are real. But the idea here is instead of to enlighten people to the truth, it's to deceive people to falsehood, to continued rebellion, to eternal damnation. And so I think that's important that we see that because there, there is this great deception. But but here's the thing you'll notice here. These people who the wicked are deceived here. Why are they deceived Because they did not love the truth to be saved. They didn't turn to God. They didn't trust in Christ. They didn't repent of their sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. They're deceived because they, 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 they really, they had already been in this period of deception. They've continued to reject the truth. And not only that, notice here. What's behind the the deception of Satan? The work of Satan? You see God here. What's God doing? He sends a strong delusion over these people. These people who rebelled against God in their willful blindness, then God says, I'll deliver them over. He sends over them a strong delusion. God is actively uh, helping them in their complete rebellion against Him. That's shocking to some people that God would, would bring that upon them. But I want you to turn to Romans 1. I think and some of y'all did this today. Uh, I heard it, I think, over here in the discussion group. But turn to Romans 1, verses 28 through 32. Because I want you to see this. And see, here's the thing. Some of you may read these verses in 1, 28 through 32 and say, did God really say that? Does that really mean, is that God's law? Is that God's ways? Is that what He's about? The world is, 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 is running away from those things. People are telling me different than that. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Here's the spirit of the Christ, the, uh, of God, of His ways and the way that He is. And this is the, you're going to see the opposite of what it means to walk with God. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. 
there were, uh, sorry, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What does it mean to walk away from God, to be given over to rebellion and to continue in it, and for God to deliver you over into it? It is when you take these things, you live in this way, and you give hearty approval. You celebrate rebellion. And you see that. Even within the church today, The church is filled with people and leadership that they're celebrating rebellion. And they say it's okay. And they will be damned. Do you understand that? Jesus said about them that many say that they're with me. They are not with me. And many will lead people to damnation. It's like they're drawing them away. They're neglecting the truth. They're turning, reversing the truth and giving people error. And saying it's okay. And in that day, there will be many, and even in this day, who continue to follow in that way. But in the great rebellion, there will be many that what you would say, oh, that was the church. We would say, no, that's not the church. They are following after the one who is false and lying and deceiving. And they will be damned in the end and not saved. What a frightening place to be. This is a... Something that should sober us. Christ is going to return. But know that as we live in this day, many will be following after the spirit of the Antichrist. But there will come a day when in great droves the church will abandon the faith. Abandon the laws of God. Abandon the ways of God. And they will be damned forever. They claim Christianity, but there will be nothing of Christianity within them. It will be church buildings filled with people who know not God nor his ways. What a frightening place to be. So as God's people, we must establish ourselves in the truth. We must hold fast to what is true and right. We must desperately seek to lead others to know the truth and to come to Christ and to repent and believe in the gospel That Christ alone saves. That He rescues us. And we need to do that now. We need to cry out to people all around us. That Christ is the only Savior. He is our only hope. That He has established a way in which we are to live. And that looks looks like what is revealed in Scripture. And anything else is counterfeit. And it could destroy your life. We need to be people that lead others in the ways of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would cause us to grow in our love for you, to grow in in the knowledge of the truth, to not be deceived by the lies of this age, to not be deceived if, if the Antichrist figure was to come today, that we pray we would be people established in the truth, that we would know the true and living Christ who came to save us from our sins, that we would stand firm in these last days as we await His coming. 
We beg you to do that in us. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand with